If you're a pre-med, go check out our new podcast, Ask Dr. Gray Pre-Med Q&A. You can find it at askdrgray.com. This is Specialty Story, session number 47. Whether you're a pre-med, a medical student, or a resident, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. This week, I have a great guest to talk all about an awesome surgical subspecialty. But before I jump in there, I just want to remind you, go check out Ask Dr. Gray Pre-Med Q&A if you are a pre-med. If you're not a pre-med, go tell all your pre-med friends. I know that you are out there. You have people asking you, what, what did you do to get into medical school? Just point them in the direction of Ask Dr. Gray Pre-Med Q&A or all of the shows that we host at mededmedia.com. Now, today I have Dr. Wesley Oman. He is an academic vascular surgeon in the St. Louis area, and he's been out of practice only for a short few months. But in that time, he's gained a lot of great experience, and he is going to talk all about vascular surgery in today's episode. So let's go ahead and dive in and find out how Dr. Oman was first exposed or first formed an interest in vascular surgery. I had exposure to vascular surgery, uh, at least from an engineering standpoint as an undergrad, with some of the earlier stent grafts for uh, aortic aneurysms. Really didn't make the decision until my uh, late in my third year, really going into my fourth year with my sub-eyes. I was fortunate to have uh, really world-class mentors, both on the, the cardiac and the vascular side of things, and uh, they helped guide my decision. And, really, you know, the cardiac guys really supported me uh, going into vascular because I think they saw that's where my, my interest and my skill set lie uh, more than on the cardiac side. What was it with your interests and skill sets that you think led you down that path? More of the the interventional approach where you know you can you can treat an aneurysm in one room uh, with two small needle pokes in the art in the femoral arteries and the patients go home the next day uh, whereas in the next room you can be doing an open aneurysm and the patients can stay for a week and kind of really deciding which patient benefits from which um, and you know really really trying to master both both open and endovascular surgery I, I I was fortunate enough to where my mentors would, you know, let me manipulate the wires uh, when it was safe to do so, uh, even as a medical student. And so that just kind of whet my appetite and it it only went from there. What other specialties were in the running as you were going through your sub-eyes through your fourth year trying to figure out what you wanted to do? So I thought about cardiac surgery, uh, of course, and you know, my med school was one of the early partner uh, trial sites, so we, you know, I got exposure to Tavers, and uh, they were just starting to get uh, Mitraclip and other uh, cardiac interventions, and I found them interesting, but for some, 
I reason I still can't explain the kind of the technical aspects of doing a, a fenestrated aneurysm repair just appealed more to to kind of how I approach problems and think about things. And then uh, I, I thought about neuro neurosurgery and really more of the interventional neuro neurosurgery as opposed to true neurosurgery and I know as a as a vascular surgeon saying that someone has worse outcomes than we do with amputations, but that's that's really kind of the the case with a lot of the interventional neurosurgery that I saw was that the you know even if the you know the clot from the MCA was pulled out, the the patient might not have had the best uh, outcome, and I just I didn't know if I would be able to weigh uh, on that for the rest of my career. Okay, what traits do you think lead to being a good vascular surgeon? Uh, spatial reasoning more, more so than any other surgical discipline, uh, as we, we do open surgery anywhere in the body and that really kind of understanding not just where the blood vessel runs, but where's the, you know, the nearest muscle insertion or origin, um, and how are you going to be able to tunnel your bypass graft or how are you going to get exposure to that artery, uh, and then in the belly, you know, really being able to not only understand where the important organs live, but also uh, being able to kind of manipulate the space in terms of where you're going to run your bypass. Um, and then more than anything else that I saw in my general surgery training was a, a, a really demand for technical precision. Uh, vascular surgery has a way of humbling you uh, for even a millimeter or two off one way or the other in your anastomosis. And uh, you know that can that can mean the difference between uh, successful anastomosis versus coming back at night to to revise it. It's it's interesting when you you talk about the anatomy of every every place. I it, I would think that vascular surgery may be up there with a, a general orthopod. Like you have to know every inch of the body. The, yep. the anatomy and and all of that to to successfully operate on somebody. Yeah, I, I joke with some of my friends from medical school that I'm kind of a I'm a I'm a practical radiologist in that they they know the anatomy from looking at pictures, but this is something that you know in my in my practice on a daily basis. You know, today I was in the chest and the pelvis and the leg and subsequent cases, and that's just kind of how uh, you know or what vascular surgery demands of you. Wow. That's pretty cool. As somebody who loves anatomy, that's the only class I liked in med school. <laughs> Talk about the the types of patients that you're treating. So you talked about chest and pelvis and, and other stuff. On a on a day-to-day basis, what kind of bread and butter things are, uh, are vascular surgeons treating? What kind of patients are they seeing? Sure. Uh, it, and I, I say this from an academic standpoint, but I think it's going to be true for even those in the community as well as that the, a big portion is going to be the end-stage renal patients, um, not only in terms of either access creation or maintaining a, a functioning access for dialysis, uh, either through revisions or fistulograms, but uh, also all the peripheral arterial disease that comes along with um, kind of the, the disease burden with end-stage renal disease. Uh, and then uh, the the smokers, if you want to think about, you know, your your average VA patient uh, kind of encapsulates a lot of general or a lot of vascular surgery um, from a general standpoint. And they're the they're the smokers, they're the diabetics, they're the ones that 
you know, don't necessarily take the best care of their body. Um, and so they get peripheral arterial disease or they get uh, an aneurysm because the, you know, for whatever reason, we think the nicotine activates the uh, uh, MMPs in the aortic wall and that leads to degeneration. Uh, but from an academic standpoint, I also get the, a lot of the referrals for, you know, uh, infected uh, either endografts or grafts or aneurysms in and of themselves. And sometimes that's just plain un, you know, unluck or, uh, excuse me, bad luck rather for those patients. You mentioned community versus academic a little bit. Talk about for you the the decision algorithm for staying in an academic setting versus going out to the community. Sure, I actually looked at uh, jobs for both uh, uh, community and academic. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, made me stay in academics, of you know, of course, it, there was a job available for me. Which, when you're going through looking for a job, the academic jobs are always posted about four to six months after the private practice job. So no one ever truly knows when an academic job is going to, is going to pop up because of the difference in funding cycles. But it, it goes back to the, you know, the early exposures with the, the complex endo uh, interventions and kind of pushing the limits of what we can do uh, from an interventional approach or a minimally invasive approach while still um, doing right by the patient. Um, you know, it's it's very easy to do something to a patient, but the, determining if it's the right way to do it and then pushing the envelope in terms of what the finished rated devices or the branch devices can tolerate and how can we limit the, the, the physiologic stress, I think, on uh, really aortic surgery patients uh, is kind of what drove me towards or kept me in academics. Um, and I've you know, I've I've always wanted to be a big aortic surgeon because I found that uh, disease process in terms of aneurysms and dissections fascinating. And a lot of the the smaller hospitals or even the mid-sized hospitals just don't have the resources to support the, that very sick and very challenging patient population through no fault of the hospital. It's just mm -hmm. that's not what their you know their mission is or what their buildup is, and it takes a very specific uh, type of uh, place to do what I kind of always saw myself doing as a surgeon. It's it's funny you mentioned that we. I, I kind of always joke that you have to love your body parts, and so it sounds like you just love the aorta and that that whole disease process. I, I do, for, for better or worse. It's a cruel <laughs> mistress, um, and, and you can never determine. It's just something you latch onto and go. I don't know. It's just I just like it. <laughs> a lot of students love the the hunt and the diagnosis of a patient. As a vascular surgeon, what percentage of patients are coming to you already diagnosed and you're just fixing whatever that is? Probably two-thirds overall. And I have to say that with the caveat of I also do thoracic outlet syndrome at one of the biggest, if not the biggest, thoracic outlet syndrome referrals in the country. And so for a, nearly 100% of those patients uh, are coming with a diagnosis or a diagnosis in the ballpark. Uh, but for the, the remainder uh, of my patients... You know, I'll get referrals from the hematologist or the rheumatologist of kind of a, hey, we found this on the scan. What do you think about it? And we have this dynamic interplay in terms of is this an atherosclerotic process or is this uh, more of an inflammatory process like a takiasus or a segmental arterial medialysis? And so there's, you know, the, 
once you get out outside of the the pure simple you know patient has end-stage renal they need access or they've been smoking and they have prefer arterial disease there's really uh kind of a, a lot of not really boutique, but more esoteric diagnoses that can be made in an interdisciplinary process. And that's something that I also saw uh, kind of a lot of in the academic center. Uh, and it may exist in the community center. I just didn't, I don't have enough uh, experience in that aspect of it to really say to that. But, you know, there there are going to be days in my clinic where, you know, the, the diagnosis is is made for the patient before they get there. And I'm just talking to them about what I can do or how we can confirm that diagnosis. But for a, you know, a not, not insignificant 30, 25 to 33% of my patients, there is usually some sort of interplay between myself and another consulting physician about, you know, hey, what do you think about this or this? Uh, but in terms of, you know, a, a lot of my diagnoses aren't made from the subtle physical exam findings um they're they're important but it's it's really a very imaging driven uh specialty describe a typical day i would say there isn't one and that that's kind of um a a selling point for me but you know if i'm on if i'm on call at a major center you know i could very well get uh, a ruptured an- aortic aneurysm and go do that while dealing with a gunshot wound to an extremity and having to figure out how I'm going to reconstruct that and what conduit I'm going to use and then um, bouncing back to m- more more of my elective cases. But it's very easy to go from a, you know, starting your day with a carotid endarterectomy and then going to a lower extremity peripheral uh, intervention in the cath lab and then bouncing back upstairs for, you know, either a bypass or a big, um, belly revascularization, just depending upon what's on my schedule for that day. So, you know, it, outside of clinic days, I really don't know what's going to come my way. Cause even if I'm not on call, if we happen to get swamped then I may be being pulled into to some other cases. And so having, being able to be flexible and, and kind of, offer the full toolkit really allows my day to be as variable as as the hospital needs it to be or as I want it to be. What percentage of your days are clinic days versus OR days? Uh, right now I have a one and a half days of clinic a week. Okay. So a lot of OR time. A lot of OR time, yes. Yeah. Well, it's balanced between not only the operating room but also the cath lab or the interventional suite, uh, just kind of depending upon you know, what the patient needs and how can I, how can I meet that? Okay. Do you have to take a lot of call? I'm, I'm in one of those rare groups where there's a I have 10 partners, uh, nine of which still take call. So I, you know, it, it ends up being a one in eight or so, uh, call. So I, I'm on call a, a weekday, usually every other week. And then, uh, weekend call every other month, which is is significantly better than it was when I was in training. And you know, outside of those large groups, it's pretty easy to still be in a Q3, Q4 call. Now that being said, at at um, at Barnes, where I am, we're a major referral center. So even though it's an infrequent call, it's still a very busy call. I'd say you know probably half of my calls I'm up. Uh, operating most of the night, if not all of it, 
and then still running a full day the next day. Um, and the other half I'm, you know, interacting with the referral line or, um, uh, fielding inpatient consults that don't necessarily need to go to the operating room. So it's still pretty busy. Uh, but I know some of my friends who have taken more of the community, uh, jobs, if they're on call and it's something outside of their wheelhouse or what the hospital doesn't have support for, they usually ship it on, uh, unfortunately my way sometimes, <laughs> but it also, it, you know, it, it all comes around. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not too burdensome. Although going into vascular surgery, uh, there should be the expectation that there, there are going to be emergencies because not a lot of our cases when something goes wrong, can we really sit on it until the next morning? It's not pathology. No. <laughs> what, uh, do you feel like as a vascular surgeon, you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? I do. Uh, and it, you know, it, I, I say that with the caveat of I'm married to a general surgery resident who's in her fourth year right now. And we have a toddler and uh, two dogs and we're, you know, it, it's tough. Sometimes we're playing hot potato with the baby, but since I've finished training, uh, life's gotten significantly better. And, you know, regardless of what my wife is doing, um, I have time for what I want to do in terms of my family and in terms of uh, my career as well. It's just kind of finding that right balance. And for my wife and I, that right balance is a, is a wonderful nanny who, you know, was here until eight o'clock tonight uh, because my OR schedule ran late. And it's just kind of finding something, some flexibility that allows you to stay in the hospital late on the rare night you need to, or the occasional night you need to, and still get out on time. Okay. What does the, the residency, the training path look like to become a vascular surgeon? So there's, at least in America, there's two uh, routes. There's the traditional uh, two-year fellowship after a five-year general surgery program uh, that's known as a five plus two. And then there's also the, what's termed the zero plus five, which is five years of some amount of general surgery and uh, a lot more vascular surgery divvied up. My program did it half and half for the first three years and the last two were only vascular. And that allows you board certification only in vascular surgery. Um, and from that, I know some people who have gone on to do cardiac fellowships or critical care fellowships uh, just to kind of, I think, augment what they can offer. Um, but if I, I feel like I came from a zero plus five program where I could do whatever I wanted anywhere in the body that I needed to, to be. And uh, I don't think either pathway is the right way. I don't think there's a, a wrong way to go. Um, I certainly have noticed that uh, kind of my, I'll say co-fellow for lack of a better term, who came from uh, general surgery training when I started my fourth year was absolutely more comfortable in the belly. But by the end of it, I think we were roughly equivalent. Um, and I certainly felt like I had stronger uh, interva interventional or endovascular skills because I didn't learn laparoscopy, whereas he did. So it's, you know, it, it really kind of takes some soul searching from the student as to to which pathway they think is best for them and what what skill set they want to have. That being said, all of my uh, friends who have done general surgery and then vascular don't touch a laparoscope. Uh, and in fact, I'm probably more likely to touch one than they are just by accident. 
Do you think somebody who's looking at vascular surgery and, and knowing those different types of training paths, is should they be looking at one over the other depending on where they want to end up in their career and an academic setting versus out in the community? I, I don't think so. I think that what's more important is the, the quality of the training program. There are certainly some you know, inter, uh, five plus two programs that will prepare you for a very successful private practice. Uh, and there are some zero plus fives that will prepare you for a very successful academic doing the big cases uh, and vice versa. Uh, I think it, each program has their own individual strengths. And when I sat down six years ago or so to make my rank list, uh, my first three were integrated programs and my fourth was general surgery. So, you know, I, I, I would really recommend kind of figuring out what they want from their, what they want their life to look like. Um, and they may not know that. And so, you know, they may think that five plus two is a safer way to go because they have their general surgery training to fall back on, which is a, is not a bad decision, but it, just with the mindset that a lot of vascular surgery is moving more towards, you know, 95 to hundred percent vascular surgery, just because of what we can do and, and how we can do it expanding every year. How competitive is vascular surgery? The fellowship is still fairly competitive. I think there's slightly more uh, applicants than there are uh, spots. And then in terms of the zero plus five, when I applied, it was more competitive than dermatology. But I think as the number of uh, spots have increased, uh, that kind of mismatch has fallen off a little bit to where it's uh, not quite as competitive as some of the integrated plastics or ENT programs, but we still probably have probably 80 applicants per our per one spot per year, and we uh, interview about 20 to 25 of them. Uh, that's for the zero plus five, and then for the fellowship numbers are probably roughly a little smaller. Do you see the big academic centers changing from the five plus two to the zero plus five? Are they adding on the zero plus five on top of what they already have? That's that's kind of a big debate that's uh, that's that's roiling the upper echelons of the SVS, uh, so to speak. So a lot of the five or the zero plus five programs were actually born out at the big academic centers. Um, you know, uh, Michigan was one of the first to have a zero plus five, as was Pitt, as was Dartmouth. These are these are big names in vascular surgery. Um, here at WashU, we keep. Uh, both pathways open where we are committed to matching one uh, each pathway per year. And part of that is the, you know, they get complimentary training like my co-fellow co and I did where, you know, it was always nice having someone to, you know, I bounced general surgery questions off him and he bounced endovascular or vascular specific questions off me. And I think that made for a better learning environment. And then there's always the big academic centers that, don't have a zero plus five and uh, I won't name names, but some of the, the bigger leaders in vascular surgery right now said that they will hopefully never have a zero plus five at their, their program. And so it's still, even though it's been out for almost a decade now, it's still a very kind of polarizing topic uh, for some of the senior people in the uh, discipline. Interesting. Okay. For a student, since vascular surgery is competitive, for a student who's interested in going into vascular surgery, what should he or she be doing to become competitive? 
unfortunately, just like for everything else, it probably comes down to having a reasonable step one score uh, because a lot, you know, that's going to be the the a very easy, quick and dirty screening uh, screening outlet for that. But one of the things that I found extremely helpful, and I've noticed as the years have gone on, is that vascular surgery is a very small field. And I think more so than general surgery or a lot of the other uh, surgical disciplines, doing a sub-eye is absolutely critical. Um, getting your name on, in the door at different places and even if you can, getting letters or phone calls from not only your home institution but other institutions as well really goes a long way towards building a competitive uh, application because it does show, especially at the zero plus five level, uh, an exploration and, a, and an interest uh, and there's still that worry about people, um, you know, falling out of the pathway and, and having an, an, an empty spot or an empty, uh, hole in their schedule for the next X number of years where you were supposed to be training. And so having that being, or being able to, to kind of show that, you know, what you're getting into, I think goes a long way. And that's certainly something that we look for. And I look for when I'm interviewing applicants. For the osteopathic student listening to this who is diehard into vascular surgery, do you see any negative bias towards the DOs in the field? Nothing overt, uh, and nothing, nothing that certainly, uh, I, you know, I, I've, that I've been privy to. I know that we've interviewed from some DOs, um, uh, in the last several years. And so it's not that we, that we or anyone else that I'm aware of has a blanket, no DO policy. Um, I think it's just a lot of the big programs for vascular surgery aren't associated with an osteopathic school. So I think that's an extra kind of hurdle that the student has to, to go through is to show that they've investigated and investigated it and have this commitment to it. And if they can show that, I think that actually goes a little bit further than the allopathic student who, you know, comes from a, a program that may have a great reputation for vascular surgery, but didn't necessarily, uh, show as much interest or build a, as competitive, a, uh, application packet. Okay. That makes sense. What opportunities are there to subspecialize as a vascular surgeon? Within vascular surgery, there's kind of several ways to kind of make your niche. Um, there aren't any formal ACGME type fellowships, but the first set will probably come to anyone's mind is there's advanced aortic endografting fellowships. Uh, Cleveland Clinic has one. Uh, the Mayo Clinic has one that's also rolled into a, a complex aortic reconstruction fellowship, uh, as does uh, UT Houston, where I went to medical school. Uh, these are big aortic referral centers, and so they attract the aortic super fellow, so to speak, to, to learn those techniques. Uh, but, you know, heading out into practice with vascular surgery, it's very easily, very easy to, to build a very heavy, you know, thoracic outlet syndrome practice, if that's where you want to make your mark. Um, cause if you can do it well and show consistent outcomes, those are patients that will, will come to you and the referrals will come to you as well fairly easily. Um, a lot of people in the community end up, uh, either specializing or selling a, a specialization in, lower extremity limb salvage or um, venous reflux treatments for venous reflux because those are uh, disease processes that I think we have kind of undersold as a, 
as a society or a medical profession. Uh, and you know, the, every, there's always one guy in town who's the carotid surgeon, just like the thyroid surgeon. If you get good outcomes with your carotid, uh, endarterectomies or stenting and show that your stroke rate is lower than other people, those referrals will also continue to come as well. Uh, but in terms of established training pathways, there really aren't any besides the aortic surgery uh, beyond the, the general training. It's just kind of how you want to, to market yourself. For the primary care, future primary care physician listening to this, what do you want to say to him or her to, to allow them to, to take care, better care of their patients who, who you are going to see eventually? First of all, I would thank them and tell them that they are probably my very best friend because a lot of the management of, at least the, the medical management of vascular patients, and I don't mean, I'm not trying to settle it to just the carotid or just the lower extremity patients. A lot of it is driven by the primary care physician in terms of uh, you know, following the JNC8 uh, guidelines or the AHA guidelines uh, in terms of the best medical management uh, of those. And I, I talk to, I'd say probably a third of my clinic patients, I end up getting a phone call or giving a phone call to the primary care physician just to kind of pick their brain, um, about it. But I think it really is, um, under recognized in a large portion of society. Uh, you know, everyone thinks about carotid disease and stroke, but, uh, lower extremity, uh, peripheral arterial disease and claudication and critical limb ischemia um, are fairly quick to pick up in terms of uh, simple questions about claudication or do you have um, rest pain when at night requiring you to dangle your leg off the edge of the bed and those are those are pretty quick and easy easy things that can um, prompt a referral to me and really impact a patient's uh, overall. Uh, lifespan. If you know they, if they can't get their patient to to lose weight because the patient can't walk because their legs hurt, I can help knock that peg out of the way and you know get the patient back onto the pathway that the PCP may have uh, at least outlined for them. And so uh, it it's critical uh, of, of all of the surgical disciplines that I I looked at or that I've been exposed to. I think a lot of a lot more medical management happens in vascular surgery than than a lot of the other specialties. I have to be kind of, you know, a, a PCP and a surgeon uh, myself, most of my clinics. What other specialties do you work the closest with? Uh, the cardiac surgeons, uh, just because we do a lot of combined cases. Uh, in the chest, I did an ascending to a nominate artery bypass today with one of the cardiac surgeons. Um, when we do the open thoracoabdominal aneurysms, those are uh, combined with the cardiac surgeons. I have a lot of discussions with nephrologists, not only from the, you know, this patient needs dialysis access, but also the, the would this patient benefit from a renal artery stint? Um, that's a fairly common question that I get. Uh, the hematologists and I bounce things back off uh, each other in terms of how do we manage uh, venothromboembolic events and what's the best management uh, of those. And then particular to being a, a, an urban level one trauma center, we we interact with the trauma team on a 
I won't say nearly nightly basis, but it sometimes it seems like it's every night I'm on call, we're interacting with them. Um, and it really, you know, we interact a lot with, uh, radiology I already touched on primary care, um, who are, you know, I, I can't say enough about a good primary care physician in terms of my vascular, uh, surgical patients. And then, uh, you know, a lot of places I'm very fortunate where the turf wars are kind of, they were fought by a generation before me, so I don't have to fight them, but we do interact a lot with our interventional radiology colleagues in a uh, congenial relationship and not in a antagonistic relationship. Uh, same thing with the interventional neuroradiologists. They uh, have really done, you know, they've really made a name for themselves in the intracranial work and we do most not all but most of the extracranial carotid disease um and so it, it you know if if those issues hadn't been as settled i think it might be a little bit different but i have very good relationships with just about everyone in the hospital talk about that i'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was the next thing i was going to talk about yeah. are the are the turf wars because i've i've had an interventional radiologist on before and enter other interventionalists, and it seems like vascular is the the new uncharted territory for some of these other interventional um, subspecialties. And so, from the vascular surgeon standpoint, or for somebody looking to get into vascular surgery, is that something they should worry about as far as limiting their scope of practice in the future? No, and I think that's because a lot of the a lot of the blame for kind of vascular being open for other subspe or other specialties is that we've done a poor job of defining uh, what what's the best treatment option for this disease process. And you know, the interventional cardiologists or the inter interventional radiologists have the skill set to treat those patients as you know as equivalently as I do in terms of putting a wire across a lesion and putting a balloon or a stent in the, the really the, the, the thought process and the, the, the way that I think the vascular surgeons can really sell themselves is yes, I could treat that lesion in the superficial femoral artery, but I also have the ability to do a bypass and I have the ability to think about, am I burning any bridges by doing this, you know, if I, if I put a stent here, am I ruining where I can sew a bypass in and into? And, you know, if we can define who benefits from what procedure and then also market ourselves as, well, we can do this, but we can also do the open surgical bypass. We can be your one-stop shop for lower extremity work. Uh, I think that's how we uh, either protect our, you know, our patient population or start to start to grow it. Uh, because I, you know, I, I certainly won't sit here and tell you that there aren't interventional radiologists that can do phenomenal work in the peripherals, or the cardiologists can't can't do good work in the, you know, in the in the renal segment, whatever the case may be. But I, I really think it as a as not only someone who can put a hole in an artery and and fix a remote artery. I can also make an incision and, and provide a definitive fix uh, to that problem. Okay. What other or what opportunities are there outside of clinical medicine for a vascular surgeon? Uh, there's 
you know, the, the first thing that always comes to mind is industry. A, a lot of the early advances in terms of, you know, the, the first stint was developed by a physician, um, admittedly not a vascular surgeon. Um, and the, a lot of the, the newer, um, stent grafting was, um, at least in America was, uh, pushed by a vascular surgeon or helped develop by a vascular surgeon. Um, and you know, that we have a, at least where I am, we have a, a, a very large industry presence and we're very active on clinical trials. The IP world for, uh, vascular surgery or devices in general has changed quite a bit into where it's not like it used to be where I have this idea, I'm going to take the idea to the, the, you know, the industry, be it Gore, Medtronic or Cook, um, and they'll, you know, that they'll run with it and I'll just sit back and collect royalties. The, I think the, the, that those, those easy picking days, so to speak, are gone. They really want to see, um, an idea kind of, brought to uh almost brought to the market in terms of the the background studies and the safety and efficacy studies and the you know i, I ideally if they could get us at the past the pivotal into the or past the feasibility into the pivotal trials i think that's where a lot of the companies really see uh themselves making an investment in um uh in a in a design or an idea that that a surgeon may have um, I know some of my partners are from the more basic science side, uh, are working on small drug molecules, uh, and working with industry from that standpoint. And then, uh, one of my former partners who moved on to the university of Michigan was really big in kind of you know, the, the buzzword of nanotherapeutics and kind of pushing the, the envelope of how do we, how do we augment, um, devices with small drug molecules for lack of a better term um to kind of bridge both the industry both the the device industry and the the pharmaceutical uh aspect of it um and then uh you know there's there's always a the kind of the policy standpoint as a, as i mentioned earlier vascular surgery kind of hits on a lot of different disease processes that unify different uh, body areas. And so I know a lot of vascular surgeons who have tried to move into more of a, a healthcare policy standpoint from outcomes, uh, looking at not only the vascular system, but, you know, the cardiology or uh, nephrology world as well. Uh, but in terms of uh, the, the main thing, and this may be an academic bias, is that there's there has to be a, a healthy relationship with uh, industry and that right now means devices, balloons, graphs, stints, things of that nature. Uh, it's really more the exception for uh, the small drug molecules. Okay. What do you know now about vascular surgery that you wish you knew before getting into it? Oh, geez, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> um, when I was in training, you know, I, I it was, especially the last couple of years, it was definitely... Um, I, I kind of cursed the middle of the night. I should have gone to a place that's not a major level one trauma center, uh, because I, I don't really like operating that much in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, I, looking back on it, I, I really see that the, the trauma situations, uh, for lack of a better term, were really the ones where I grew the most as a surgeon. Um, 
and you know something that in the in that moment I was really able to to curse and be tempted to throw an instrument I, I look back and I see that you know that was an opportunity to learn how to approach new problems in a time-sensitive manner and I really think it made me a better surgeon um, would I pick vascular surgery over again absolutely um, just with the caveat that there are going to be a lot of a lot of nights uh, and late days uh, if you're going to do the the big cases. If you want to, you know, if you want to design your practice to where you are treating venous reflux all day, then you're not going to have any inpatients, and you're gonna you're gonna live a very comfortable life. It just kind of depends on what what you want, what body part you love. Yes, <laughs> exactly. What what's your organ? What do you like the most about being a vascular surgeon? Or like being able to treat any disease process uh, or any blood vessel disease process outside of the head and the heart because uh, it it always keeps my days different uh, and I really get to I really enjoy interacting with not only other surgical disciplines but also other other medical disciplines um, in in terms of approaching and managing those problems because not every patient that comes across me uh, needs a, an operation, but almost uniformly I'll be interacting with either their primary care physician or some sort of medicine subspecialist to help uh, provide some input on a disease process. So I st I'm still treating patients uh, even without a scalpel or with a, without a needle. What do you like the least? Not operating at night. <laughs> um, I was I waiting for that one. That a few times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I kind of joke with my trainees, uh, but there really is nothing more humbling than vascular surgery. Um, it is it is very demanding uh, from a technical aspect, and you know sometimes I, I I do find myself losing significantly more sleep now as a as a uh, an attending than I did as a as a trainee in terms of oh geez did I throw that stitch right or did my trainee throw that stitch right or, you know, you know, it, is it okay enough to where I can leave the operating room or do I need to, uh, continue working at this problem? Um, you know, it's not that I, I like the challenge, but it, it definitely, um, is starting to wear on me. And that's something that I'm, I, I'm starting to explore with my senior partners and, you know, it's how do you deal with that and how do you not let it wear you down, but, motivate you to, to either do better in that moment or, or you know, uh, most importantly, do better for the next patient. For somebody interested in vascular surgery, are there any major changes coming to the specialty, whether it's therapeutics or surgical techniques or turf wars, that they, they really should be aware uh, as they're looking to get into it? There's all, I mean, there's always going to be turf wars and I think that should be uh, kind of a, a call to to better ourselves and better define ourselves uh, there's always going to be you know pushing the envelope just in my time and training you know 15 20 years ago the only way to treat an aneurysm was a big belly incision um, then we got to groin cut downs and uh, rudimentary endovascular devices and you know today I can do a, you know, a complex paravisceral aneurysm through uh, a five 
five millimeter incision, five to 10 millimeter incision overlying both femoral arteries and com completely close them percutaneously to where, you know, at the one month follow, follow up, you can't even tell that they had an operation from the outside. Um, so the, the, the explosion of minimally invasive techniques uh, is, is going to allow uh, more and more people who say, hey, I have these skills uh, with the wires and catheters to come into quote unquote our turf. And it's, it's going to be up to, uh, not only myself, but, uh, the next generation to kind of say, you may be able to do that, but we can do it a lot better. And here's how, and, you know, all, eventually, you know, our, all hardware fails. It's just a matter of whether or not the patient lives long enough for the device to get fatigued then uh, require an open conversion, in which case you do want them to be at a major uh, aortic referral center, or is the graft going to get infected? Um, you know, it's not just putting in the equipment; it's also being able to manage all of the complications that come from that. And I think that's really where vascular surgeons are going to help be able to define themselves. You already answered my question about if you would do it all over again. You said a resounding yes. As we wrap up here, any last words of wisdom for that pre-med student, that medical student, or even a, the gen surge resident who, who's thinking about vascular surgery as a fellowship um, for them to continue exploring this field? I would, I would just, I'd welcome them. Um, I think it's one of the more dynamic uh, and rapidly changing um, surgical disciplines. It's certainly not only in terms of who we can treat and how, but pushing the envelope of, you know, what may be inoperable now, 10 years from now, we'll have a, a very simple device or a very simple fix that uh, they may very well be a part of developing. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's certainly not for everyone, but for those, um, like I said, those people who, who welcome the, the technically demanding challenge or the really the, the challenge and the, the opportunities of the spatial challenges that come along with vascular surgery. It's one of those things where if, if you're good at it and you have the inclination towards it, you're going to love it, for, especially for the general surgery resident um, who may only do it as an intern or a second year and not get to see the full breath and just be stuck taking care of the patients. It is so much more than that once you get into the operating room. Um, and if you have the opportunity to rotate as a senior, by all means, you should, uh, because it is, it is night and day from just managing them post-operatively or, or sewing in a simple fistula, which I'm very quickly discovering there's no such thing as a, a simple fistula. Um, but that's kind of how I thought about it as a second year resident. Um, you know, wh when you're doing the, the, the more, challenging cases either technically or intellectually it's it's incredibly rewarding even though the patients may be challenging at times all right so there you have it again that was dr wesley omen a vascular surgeon in the st louis area if you're a resident of a general surgery resident a medical student or pre-med and you're interested in vascular surgery i hope this podcast gave you some experience gave you some information that will help further your decision to go into vascular surgery or maybe pull you away from it. And that's okay too. That's why we're here to give you the information to help you make a better decision 
when it comes to choosing your specialty so that at the end of it, right, after all of your training, you don't come out going, whoa, this is not what I was expecting. That's the worst case scenario. You want to get through it and, and understand what you're getting yourself into. And that's what we try to do here at the Specialty Stories. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here at Specialty Stories and MedEd Media.